Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm your host, Alejandra Bronfman. Today, I'm talking to Angelique Nixon. She's a writer, artist, teacher, scholar, activist, and poet. She was born and raised in the Bahamas and recently joined the faculty at the Institute for Gender and Development Studies at the University of the West Indies in St. Augustine. We'll be talking about her... Hello, and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm your host, Alejandra Bronfman. Today, I'm talking to Angelique Nixon. She's a writer, artist, teacher, scholar, activist, and poet. She was born and raised in the Bahamas and recently joined the faculty at the Institute for Gender and Development Studies at the University of the West Indies in St. Augustine. We'll be talking about her book, Resisting Paradise, Tourism, Diaspora, and Sexuality in Caribbean Culture, which was just published with the University Press of Mississippi. The book is a study of the sexual cultural politics of tourism, It examines the ways Caribbean cultural workers negotiate and resist the complexities of tourism. I hope you enjoy the conversation. So, Angelique, thanks so much for being with me today. Thank Uh, you. It's a it's a real pleasure to get a chance to talk to you. So let me let's just start uh, with you. Actually, you're an author and you're a self-described activist. You're a person from and working in the Caribbean. And I wonder if you can tell us just a little bit about your trajectory. How did you get to where you are today and how did you come to this particular project? Okay, those are really good questions, and my trajectory is really complicated, and so I'll try to sort of uh, say it in, a, in, a sh- in the, the, the short version, which is, <laughs> yes, I uh, am born and raised in the Bahamas, and I, I worked in, I've been working in the tourist industry for as long as I can remember. I started working really young. Uh, working after school, putting myself through school, working at bars, working at restaurants, uh, which are all in many ways and directly connected to the tourist industry. I had to drop out of high school when I was uh, 16 because of a a variety of reasons, and I really wanted to go to college. The, The first time I heard of something called the university, I wanted to go. And I wanted to leave home for a variety of reasons, mostly personal and 
family related. Uh, uh, I grew up really, really poor with a really complicated family story, uh, which in many ways speak to some of the issues that I raise in the book. Uh, and so I went, I, I worked at, also worked at an offshore bank during that time of when I dropped out of high school to when I was actually able to go to college. And I actually, I, I worked at a, as a kind of junior entry level data person account in accounting at an offshore bank. And I also worked at night at different bars and just to make enough money to live, uh, taking care of family and, and stuff like that. Uh, and I really wanted to go to college and I, figure out a way to get a scholarship and to get a sponsorship from the bank that I worked at at the time. And I had to do accounting and they agreed to help send me to college and I had to work every summer for them. And so I did that for four years. And then when I was done, uh, this was in 2000, the banking industry had, had changed in the Bahamas because of secrecy laws that were opened up because of us pressure. Uh, and so essentially I didn't have a job when I graduated, although I, w- I didn't really want to come home yet. I wanted to go to graduate school. I wanted to write during that process. I had learned about uh, the Caribbean and learned about all these histories that I, I didn't get in my very British colonial education in the Bahamas. Uh, and so I was politicized in a particular kind of way and really wanted to write. I'd always wanted to write, but didn't think of it as a career. I didn't think it was something that I could do. Uh, and so I had this degree in accounting and my, and I did minors in humanities and global studies and my professors at undergrad at, 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 in no, at Nova Southeastern in Fort Lauderdale said, you should just apply to an English program and, you know, you can get graduate assistance and you're, you know, international student, you could probably get some scholarships. And so I did, and I got in and I went to Florida Atlantic University, and I started teaching as a part of my teaching, as a, a part of the assistantship. And to my surprise, I fell in love with teaching, and I started studying Caribbean literature and multicultural literature, and I was immediately drawn into it. And that began my career into academia and and uh, and writing. And that's where this book comes from in a lot of ways. It started during my PhD work at the University of Florida, uh, but it really grew after I graduated. I did a postdoc at NYU in Africana Studies, and I taught in Women and Gender Studies and Sexuality Studies programs. Uh, and, and in that process, the book has been forged. <laughs> so as I say in my introduction and also in my acknowledgments page that, that this is not just an, an area of academic inquiry for me. It's a very personal a personal inquiry, a personal set of questions about what it means to be a part of a region that is so reliant upon tourism and how that affects our sense of self and our culture. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think that the, the, the one of the things that drew me to this book actually was that there are, are a growing number of books on tourism in the Caribbean, but I think that yours is the first one I've seen where you take on the idea that there are people in the Caribbean who are being very critical of it and who are engaging it in, in, a, in a kind of a different way than a kind of academic critique of tourism might. And so I'm wondering how you came to that idea in particular, because that's, that, that's one of the things that really struck me as, as unique in this book. Yes, well, thank you for that. And I think that that's what, you know, I when I started the 
the, the process of thinking about, well, like, because this sort of grew out of my dissertation. So my dissertation research in 2006 really started, and between 2006 and 2008, when I did the research and wrote the dissertation and graduated, uh, that was the process of me really figuring out what I wanted to do. My dissertation looks really different, actually, though, from this book, but a lot of my uh, initial research comes out of that process, and a part of that had to do with the brilliant and powerful anthropologist Faye Harrison, Mm-hmm. who was on my committee, and she suggested to me, because I had had this personal experience and I had so many connections in the region, uh, particularly in the Bahamas and Jamaica where I do my case studies, she said, you know, why don't you go and do some work at home and then maybe also in Jamaica and do some investigation. Think about how your reading of literature and culture can be complicated by, you know, just spend some time at home and, and think about it, Right. Because some of the writers who I looked at initially, Jamaica Kincaid in particular, very, very critical and harshly so. A lot of the uh, sociology and anthropology uh, academic works coming out about tourism are very, very harshly critical of tourism. Mm -hmm. Uh, But one of the things I wanted to talk about was that it's so complicated depending on how close you are. If you're reliant upon the tourism industry every single day, you have a different relationship. So I wanted to talk about the kinds of negotiations that people make who live and work and create and imagine in sites of tourism. Uh, and, and so that's where that came from. And I have to really thank my committee at that time who they were really supportive of my work. And so I was able to do that. And luckily at the same time I met uh, I met Erner Broadbert, who is an amazing Jamaican sociologist, novelist, activist, who invited me and some friends to come to her Black Space project. And so I was able to do that in the summer of 2007, as well as spend a couple months at home. So I spent that summer and time that year thinking about these particular sites, or what I call them, sites of the sites of alternative alternatives to mass tourism and to the existing tourism model. And so those two experiences and those two opportunities allowed me to think through it. And I did a number of interviews in the Bahamas with people working in the tourism and culture industries. I interviewed writers. I interviewed people who are closely related to the tourism industry. So, for example, taxi drivers, straw market workers, people who work in hotels as cleaning staff, janitorial staff people who are making souvenirs who are entrepreneurs, hosts and hostesses of different restaurants, managers of different parts of the the hotel industry, all the way to the, uh, at the time, the director of culture uh, in the Bahamas. So I interviewed a bunch of people. I also got to interview Arlene Nash Ferguson, who I highlight in the book, who is an amazing uh, worker, cultural worker around Junkanoo. And, and so those are the things that kind of built that. And, I, and so I wanted to bring together literary analysis and my interview process and then also my participatory observation in a variety of festivals and cultural activities. And then for Jamaica, that was the Bahamas. And then for Jamaica, because I participated in this Black Space project, uh, that ended up looking a little different. But it's the same sentiment, right? It offers us different ways to think about how people in the Caribbean, in the region, are negotiating with tourism and creating new models and teaching us ways, I think, 
across the world, teaching us ways to rethink tourism. Yeah, I think that's really true. And I, I want to get to the workers, especially, and to Black Space, because I, I found that project really fascinating. But I just want to ask you one more question, actually kind of methodological and in terms of your process, because it, it really is unusual to have so many different kinds of analysis in one book. So you have this literary analysis and then ethnographies and interviews and then art and film criticism. And even, you know, you have to do some history of the of Jamaica and of the Bahamas. Um, so how did you write that? How did you <laughs> pull all of that together? It's really impressive. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, it took a really long time. <laughs> and it took a... Uh, took a long time. It took a lot of revisions and rewrites and reimagining of how I could bring these together, uh, particularly for the, I mean, and I also changed a lot o- over time to, 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 to get to the final product. So I guess it was the process of, and the process of writing and rewriting and thinking and also had some amazing friends who read for me, who were incredible in their insightfulness and gave me ideas on how to join different things together. So I have a really great writing group called Space, the Space Collective, and we meet every year and read each other's work. We went to grad most of us went to grad school together. And we have people who are in the academy, people who are artists, people who are activists. So it's a range of people. And so that also gave me a lot of good energy to think through it. Also, my time at NYU and Africana Studies and Gender and Sexuality Studies there was really great people like Awam Ampa and Gayatri Gopanath. And the community that I built there, a writing community, an activist community, a women of color, poets and writers and activists, that really forged me, I think. And I... I was there for a year, but then I worked in Connecticut and then Pennsylvania, but spent a lot of time in New York. That time really, really helped. It was very generative for my writing and for my analysis, and I think my theoretical and methodological, where I ended up in terms of my methodology and my, and my theory, that helped me a lot. And, and finally, I spent a year here in Trinidad as a Fulbright scholar at the Institute for Gender Development Studies, where I now have a lecturer position and I'm staying here as a result of my past year. Uh, and the time here has also been really generative. And that helped me to get through that last push of those final edits and pulling things together. Yeah, it's really important. It's really interesting to hear about the importance of communities because we, we often think about writing as such a solitary thing and it is a solitary thing. And, it's nice to hear that there are these kinds of communities of, of people supporting each other. So um, I want to talk about uh, Dantica and Kincaid, because those are two of my favorite writers. Um, and you talk about the authors as continuing, in some ways, the tradition of the exile authors, right? Like George Lamming and other ones. So what is it, for people who haven't read the book, what is it about leaving and leaving and returning um, that shapes the critiques of tourism? And how does it how does sort of inflect their perspectives and how they write about it? That's a great question. And I, and for me, I ended up starting the book. Well, in a lot of ways, my analysis and thinking through this issue of what does it mean to return? How do Caribbean migrant writers return and how do they write about space? 
So it started for me there, and you'll notice the trajectory of the chapters kind of go from there, right? From writers who are abroad to much more locally mm-hmm. focused workers and writers, and that that was very deliberate mm-hmm. because it, it, that's actually where my thinking through of each part of the of these dynamics came together. So it started with Kincaid, and so it makes sense that that's my first major chapter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that for the for, for me and how I, how I see their work, I think spending time away, uh, and also for my own self, because a part of it was for me thinking about my own positionality as a migrant writer and a migrant person who studied in the U.S. and then ended up working and staying for a long time. I lived in the U.S. for 18 years. So I, I thought about it through my own lens as well. And I think return, I think leaving and re- leaving and then leaving and returning uh, can offer one a different sense of the space. It can also offer one, and it offered for me, I think, a way to, to see the region and to understand regionality uh, and the particularities also of space, right? Because mm-hmm. at the same time, Thinking through the region offers a way to understand, especially with global relations of power, the post-colonial experience and different kinds of oppression and marginalization. We need to understand it in that larger space. And at the same time, we want to be particular, right? Because uh, my analysis of looking at, at looking at Kincaid and talking about Antigua at a particular moment in the 80s and 90s looks different than than Danticott talking about Haiti, right, in the in the 2000s and looking at Jacques Mel Carnival. But yeah. at the same time, they use very similar, I think, modes and create models for us to, one, critique tourism, to uncover the exploitation that we can see in the tourism industry, and three, prioritize the rewriting of history and history that I think is a common a common denominator among the writers in particular who spend time unearthing histories and histories and stories about the Caribbean and saying, actually, the Caribbean is the center. We no longer have to think of ourselves as marginal because, in fact, we are the center of modernity. In fact, we are the center of so much of how the contemporary moment of, of how economic power works that the Caribbean has been at the center of that. And so uh, for me, I think that for both Kincaid and, and, and Danticat, they're able to give us that kind of lens, even as they focus on the particular, I think that they have offered for me a language to think through those uh, difficult conversations and those difficult histories to help us understand how we are now, right. To make those connections between the past and the present. Uh, and to, to help us to to really say it plainly, say it simply as well, which I think is so important. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting to think about them together because I have to admit I hadn't thought about them together, but there really are so many similarities, even though they're radically different in their approaches. And like you say, the time that they wrote it and their perspectives, where they're coming from, but you do get a lot out of putting them together and also then thinking about the heterogeneity of the possible critiques of, um, of tourism and the situation in the, in the Caribbean. Um, so, so you move from that, like you say, you move from the kind of outside and towards the inside and here's where sort of it follows 
um, you talk about the Caribbean workers. So you move um, in that direction and complicate all of these critiques a little bit. And I thought um, it was really interesting to think about the dilemmas and how complicated it is on the ground um, for workers who are in the industry. On the one hand, they know perfectly well the critiques. They know them better than anyone. On the other hand, it's their livelihood. Um, on the one hand, they don't want to be misunderstood or misrepresented. On the other hand, they don't necessarily feel like they need to share everything with tourists who come. And so um, there's there's that, there's that constant dilemma. And I, I'm wondering how you got at that with the workers that you talked to. Did that Was that just sort of out in the open or did you have to kind of probe a little bit and, 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 and frame it that way for them? You know, I had really... I had really uh, specific questions, but I but I forged the questions so that would, they would be open ended in a lot of ways. And so I had ten questions, and I had this plan, and I thought that that's exactly how it would go. <laughs> but of course, with field work, it never works that way. And luckily for me, I had already had some training in doing oral history collection uh, during my master's uh, program. I did a really uh, intense focus focus course on how do you collect oral histories and we did a project together it was called the race and change project in bell glade in florida near lake okeechobee and so i had some experience i had we did a whole semester of collecting stories and interviewing people and so i had some really good experience with that as well as transcription different kinds of transcription thinking about ethics and ethical relationships and so that was really, really good for me. And I think um, that helped prepare me for the field. And so I had my 10 questions and I, you know, realized very early on that I would have to adjust questions depending on, depending on the, depending on the, on the person, depending on the, the, the question, depending on the language. And so a lot of times, no, I didn't have to probe. I think what I did was, I would change the question if it was clear that the person was like, I don't know, what do you mean? And I would reformulate questions. But in terms of the, in terms of the actual, the, you know, telling about those difficult encounters and experiences, I just asked the question and they, and a lot of my respondents opened up and talked and gave all these amazing responses. And so that was not, that was not me. I didn't have to probe. They were pretty amazing and very, very, very clear about that complexity. And, you know, that taught me. I learned so much during that process of stories. So that was, uh, it was, you know, it was there. It was so, it came through really, really easily. And I wanted to best capture all of those moments. And so I made it really clear, I think, in my you know, in my, in my introducing the collecting of stories and my interview process that, you know, this is by no means a kind of generative response of workers in the tourism industry in the Bahamas, but rather reflections. And, you know, I wanted to make that very, very clear. And then I did interviews throughout, right? So the interviews look and feel different depending on who I'm interviewing, right? So 
I interviewed Esther Figueroa for about her film. I interviewed uh, artists, uh, in particular John Cox uh, in the Bahamas. Later on, I mean that that project came up later on. That sort of at the end of the book that I talk about the potential of art tourism mm-hmm. as another model. So, uh, in a lot of ways, the book is almost like a chronology of my own sort of movement through. Okay, how am we thinking about these ideas? What's the latest thing? And there are always new things, and so it's very difficult to decide where to stop. You know, in many ways, I wanted to do more interviews, but I had to stop, and mm-hmm. I had to write the book. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I think uh, what I learned most is that people have a lot of ideas about how tourism doesn't work, how it can work, and how we can change it. Yeah, and it, like I said, it's really interesting, actually, that um, in a lot of the books on tourism that you read in the Caribbean, th- that that piece of it is missing. The the workers' voices, people who are on the ground every day and negotiating these challenges and contradictions, don't often um, have a, a place in kind of analyses of tourism. So I, I really appreciated that. Um, but I want to. I'd love to talk about Esther Figueroa because I think she does wonderful uh, work. And um, and Broadbur also the two Jamaicans that you sort of talk about and and think about in terms of alternative critiques of tourism and that are very much aimed I think at the local scene even though they do also seem to have some kind of transnational dimensions and I was really I was thinking about how they convey their critiques and the media that they use because Esther Figueroa is a filmmaker I mean she's a writer as well. And I think she's just come out with a novel, right? Um, but the films... Yes, are, Limbo. Yeah, mm-hmm. the films are really striking. And the, the whole Broadburst's whole idea of, of this kind of space uh, that's an educational space and a kind of performative space is really fascinating. So I was, I was wondering if you, um, if you could talk a little bit about those, the particular media and, and how that works in terms of does it access, does it get to a different audience and do people kind of understand the critiques a little bit differently if it, if it's coming in the form of a film or even this kind of educational effort and gesture? Definitely. I think that film is so powerful, right? I mean, we're in a visual culture, a visually driven time, I think overly so. And so one of the things that I think as artists, I'm an artist as well, we have to think about is how do we, and a, and a poet, I'm always thinking about, oh, how do we make it visual, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that the films, the, the film work of Esther Figueroa is a particularly powerful because she shows you the landscape, the social, physical landscape. Yeah of Jamaica that is being transformed, you know, from the, the fisher, the, the fisheries and the fisher folk who are struggling. She has a whole series about, about the fishing industry and the fisher folk whose livelihoods are being devastated and destroyed by these huge, this, this massive construction of hotels and resorts and condos built along the North coast of Jamaica. That's continuing. Uh, and that work came out of her, out of this, out of Jamaica for sale, which, came out in 2009, but she had difficulty because of musical rights getting it out. Nevertheless, I think the, the film has been shown all over the world. Mm-hmm. It's across the region. I've been a part of a number of dialogues about the film, and I've shown it in a number of my classes with students, and it is incredibly powerful. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons I want to focus on it, as well as doing a follow-up interview with her, because I wanted to have that space to talk about 
some of the challenges that she had as a filmmaker. And I think she's by far one of the most critical out of uh, the, the the local cultural workers and artists that I that I spoke to uh, in terms of the unsustainability of tourism. She's very clear, right? And I think a part of that has to do with the intensity of Jamaica in pursuing tourism as its savior and its model for economic growth and and a kind of rescue from the debt that Jamaica is in. And ironically, the reason I wanted to show the Bahamas and Jamaica up against each other as kind of case studies in the book is because a lot of times Jamaica, the Jamaican tourism uh, industry, were, uh, in major industry powers will say, oh, we want to be like the Bahamas. We want 5 million visitors. The, the airport was just uh, renovated a few years ago to accommodate that, right? So I wanted to put them against each other because I think that is a striking we already know that tourism is the, is the model for economic growth and progress and development. But we also can see how it fails time and time again. So uh, for me, though, I think uh, Erna Broadbury's work is, is, is very different, even though I think they're both incredibly critical of the unsustainability of it. But I think what Erna Broadbury has done has offered us a way, not only in terms of our imagination, right, which I think is really important, uh, through her through her novel Mile, and then also what she's done through her speeches, through the creation of Black Space, her research project, which is where educo tourism or educational tourism comes out of, and it's small. It's not it's not huge. And I say very clearly that I don't think that this is somehow going to transform mass tourism, but it shows us that there are different ways to think about the relationship uh, and relationships among. People of African descent in particular, because that's the focus of her project and how we think about travel. And, you know, part of my book is about that as well. How do Caribbean people travel? Mm -hmm. How do people of African descent travel? What is African diaspora tourism? Is that, a you know, is heritage tourism a thing? Uh, can it be a thing that we pursue even more? I mean, it's been a thing for a long time, but, you know. Is it actually ethical? Can it be ethical? Is it the answer? Because yeah. I really search for ethical. Like I, I sort of gave up the idea that we could have sustainable tourism. It can't be sustainable <laughs> because it is reliant upon foreign investment and a yeah. monoculture economy that is never going to be fully sustainable. It can't be. Yeah. So how do you? How how can we make it more ethical and less exploitative? Is what I sort of ended up go looking for at, at the end. You know. Yeah. Yeah, I know that's um that's really interesting. I was there was something I was going to say but now <laughs> um oh, I know. Uh in terms of uh, Esther Figueroa, uh the films I think you're right. They're very striking because they're so visual and she had this project to document the changes in the land and that's so dramatic when you look at it. Um I show my students the really short film about the um the cruise ships. Uh and they, it really opens their eyes, and they, I don't think they ever go on a cruise ship again after seeing those films. Um, but I Which is to great. I mean, that's what I always, I always tell people whenever, whenever I give a talk about this work and, and my book or this project and different parts of it, you know, especially students and young people will say, but how, 
what are, what am I supposed to do now? How can I travel? Yeah. Yeah. And I say, first thing, don't ever go on a cruise. Yeah. It's literally the worst <laughs> possible right. model. Yeah. None of them goes to local economy. If you care about the place you're going, even remotely, don't go on a cruise. And I also say that knowing that a lot of you know, working class and middle class people get to go on vacation because cruises are so cheap. Right. But then I say, well, think about why they're so cheap. They're cheap because it's exploitative. It's incredibly exploitative on people, land, environment, and economies yeah. and the places, right? Mm-hmm. And so I immediately, I always say that. And I also say, you know, do your very best to go to the place, learn about the place, find out what's there, find out some of its history, yeah. and you know, know about the place that you go to, which is, you know, part of my focus on Paul Marshall and Audrey Lord, mm-hmm. as a they 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 create alternative models through their writing, through their literature, and for for Audrey Lord, literally her own movement back to the Caribbean shows us a more ethical relationship to space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's true, and it seems like Broadbur is doing the same thing. And I'm wondering what that experience was like. Do you think that that is going to? I mean, has that flourished as a project? Do you think it's going to? Um, take off as a kind of alternative and perhaps more ethical way to, to, to be a tourist or to be a traveler? I really hope so. I mean, I, I, I published a version of that chapter just focusing on Broadbur in Makamere Journal, and I got a, I've gotten really great feedback on that piece, and people have done interviews with her, and you know, she's writing her novels, and she's still doing it. You know, the Woodside Community Development committee hosts the Emancipation Day activities every year and so it, it continues uh, from what I understand. I've been I've been meaning to go back for a while and I and I need to. I hope to go back soon and do some follow-up work. Mm-hmm. But uh, essentially what I know is that every year it kind of changes depending on who goes. But it but it's it's sustaining itself and I think it's still very much is as as alive as a model. Mm-hmm. Uh, but has it taken off in any large way? I don't think so. And I, I can't say for sure. Mm-hmm. I do know that there are other kinds of eco projects and more, you know, eco tourism projects emerge and, 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 and sort of fade away across the region. But we do know for certain that people are looking for different models. Like, yeah. you know, tourists are heterogeneous. And are also looking for not that cruise ship experience. Yeah. So we know that has already changed, especially in the past 10 years, 10 to 20 years, people want different kinds of experiences. So I do think, I do think it's possible. And one of the things I hope is that, you know, in being back in the region, I would really, really like to, ex- you know, one of the things that Broadbird wants is that her black space project goes spreads across right so it's across the region especially uh but that that idea of having a relationship that people come and visit and share in knowledge share in reasonings and share ideas uh, about how we create a better future right that that's that's our model and i and i hope i i i would like to be a part of i'm i'm part of sharing that model but i also would like to be a part of leading a project that is similar and and I've done that in, in different kinds of ways but I'm I'm looking forward to the to the opportunities that I know will come by being in Trinidad and Tobago. Yeah, it's it's inspiring and maybe as you say the idea is not to think about these big things but small interventions and lots of small interventions or something like that, right? That would just kind of change the whole 
landscape of tourism. Um, but I wanted to, um, I wanted to, before, as we sort of start to wrap up, to talk about art. And the last chapter is another kind of little glimmer of hope, I thought, maybe, um, in the way you talk about art tourism and this uh, really fascinating-sounding resort, the Bahamar in the Bahamas, that um, exhibits a lot of local art and artists. And um, how does that how does that work? What role does art play? I, I was thinking a lot about this because we just, in my class, had a Cuban artist come and talk to us about the opening up of the market and the way that artists are both um, quite critical of the market, but in some ways depend on that international art market. And I'm wondering what that what that feels like in in Bahamar and how that how that translates in that setting. Wow, it's interesting. You should ask that. So I, I finished the final edits for this book last summer. Uh, well, actually last October, right before it went in for copy editing and, and laying out for, for printing and all of that. So I had no opportunity to update the book, really anything significant except for minor edit edits after October of last year. So we flash forward to this year. Bahamar was supposed to open in January. Then it got pushed. To, well, it was supposed to open in December. Then it got pushed to March. And then it got pushed to June. And finally, they filed for bankruptcy in March. <laughs> uh, no, no, no. Sorry. They filed for bankruptcy in in June or July. And so, anyway, it's been a complete, uh, complete disaster, in oh, fact. Wow. And the... Yeah, it's and so I couldn't I couldn't obviously update the book, so it's been a little it's a little a little stressful. But nevertheless, the model so Bahamar has not opened. Bahamar is ninety eight percent, according to all of the reports. And I was just at home for the book launch in at the National Art Gallery of the Bahamas, um, and I had John Cox, who's interviewed I wait who I interviewed in the book about he was the the lead art director of this entire project. And so we got to talk a lot. Uh, but basically, it's 98% finished. The hotel is ready to open, but they need money to open. There were all of these delays in, in construction. And there are two companies who invested a lot of money who are battling it out as to who owes who and who where the money is going to come from. So it's a very, very complicated scenario, which I can't get into here. But but to say that, that the art was all, the entire five parts of this massive resort, five different hotels with different themes, it was all outfitted by Bahamian artists, led by a Bahamian team of artists. And so it was amazing, and it still is amazing, right? The idea of it was amazing, that, that, that Bahamian workers coming into this massive resort for the first time ever would see Bahamian art mm-hmm. represented all over the hotel, from the hotel rooms to sculptures and murals along the property. It's all there. Uh, and and the artists, I think it was something, it was a many, it was like, you know, over 100 artists were part of it. But I think there were 57 main people who were featured in, in the process. Some people who live in the diaspora, some people who live in the Bahamas, uh, and so they were a part of this, and they created amazing art. And uh, it's it, we have no idea what's going to happen. But nevertheless, as John Cox said and others, you know, it was about that idea. It was about that dream, and yeah. they tried. And yeah. and one of the things in my book, because I you know I wrote it, I wrote that end the ending before Bahamar opened. I said you know that 
we, we don't know if Bahamar is going to work. You know, there are all kinds of, of there were all kinds of questions about the, the scale of it. It was so massive. You know, would it even happen? And the thing is, is that it did. It did happen. At least the art yeah. part of it. And uh, and so time will tell. I will definitely do a follow up about it. And. <laughs> And I hope that we will. I hope that I will have really positive things to say. Um, nevertheless, I'm still I'm still critical of that mass tourism resort model. Right? Mm-hmm. It's all completely. For the reason why it's not open is because it's entirely wrapped up in one. It's a Chinese construction of America company that that gave a bunch of the money, and then it's an American company called Bahamar that that's registered in the U.S. that are doing battle with the bank. Uh, who's insisting upon its sovereignty to say uh, no? We need to sort through this, and so it's 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 a it's a legal and a political battle right now. That sounds really complicated. I mean, in some ways, it's such an obvious idea to have to have local artists contributing the art to a to a building, you know, that that tourists are going to come to, and that that hadn't happened until now is really kind of remarkable, and it, it is it is. Um, great that they managed to pull it together and i was actually really struck when i was i was in the bahamas recently and the national art gallery is a gorgeous place and the art there is is. really beautiful and um you know it's not a big place but but man is the the art just gorgeous so i'm i'm gonna keep my fingers crossed for some version of that although you're right the hugeness of it and the kind of resort model sounds um a little bit off-putting, but um, it'll be something to really keep an eye on. Um, so before we, before well, we, we have an amazing, sorry, go ahead. I was saying yes. There's an amazing art scene, and and even the the idea that there could be art tourism is something that I mm-hmm. think is growing across the region. Mm-hmm. And you're and yeah, it hasn't been done before. And mm-hmm. any major resort, you know, small boutique hotels may mm-hmm. do it, or small bed and breakfasts. But I think. I hope that by writing about it in the book, uh, and I hope that, you know, the ideas will still spark and that perhaps it could be a part of more locally driven solutions to this problem, you yeah. know, of tourism, that, that we think about creating and maintaining our own cultures, you know, through whatever system there is, but sustaining that of and in itself, right? For ourselves, by ourselves, right? Yeah. And that, that people who visit can participate and enjoy it, but that we don't change ourselves, mm-hmm. right? To to fit into these very limited constructions of paradise. Yeah. So hence resisting paradise. Yeah. 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 Um, before we wrap up, is there anything that you wanted to talk about that we didn't get a chance to touch on? I think we touched on on everything. I think that I, you know, one of the things I picked, I picked an art piece called Emancipation Boat Cruise by John Beadle. I want to give him a shout out, amazing, brilliant Bahamian artist. And I picked this image because for me, it was not something you would, would see in, in tourism. It's not a part of that paradise those paradise representations. And so that for me, it, it represented one, a part of the past, this thinking about emancipation, thinking about uh, what, what we can call the kind of failures of decolonization. And we see forms of resistance in, in the painting of Junkanoo, which is a Bahamian festival 
which is rooted in African diasporic cultural practices and forms of resistance. And at the same time, you see these contemporary images of young people being free and, and dancing and being themselves. And so for me, the painting is a, a metaphor for, for what I hope, what I imagine and what I, what I hope for for the future and what I think we can imagine is possibilities of resistance and that resistance can be all kinds of things, but it has to begin in us imagining and focusing on ourselves and the future. Thank you for that. The, the cover really is terrific, and I will make sure that they put a picture of it when uh, they put this up on the website. So, yeah, thanks for, for mentioning that. Oh, that would that. be lovely. Yeah. Yes. Um, and, and, and finally, we didn't talk about sexuality very much. I just want to say really, really briefly mm-hmm. that one of the things that I end up talking about in the book is that it's great to think about ethical models of tourism that are grounded in African diasporic cultural practices that are, that are about culture and heritage. Uh, but that doesn't mean that, so for me, I think that sexuality and sexual labor sometimes get left out of those conversations. And so what I wanted to do towards the end of the book is that I think culture, race, and sex and how they have deeply connected and how they get sold and exploited in the packages of paradise and tourism and the mass tourism industry and the Caribbean tourism industry. So I, so at the end of the book, I I tease out those complex negotiations and the complicated tensions the, what I call the interplay between culture, race, and sex. And, and also to remind us that the paradise is so powerful that even, even as Caribbean people and, people who have close connections with the region or have some shared connection either through African or Asian diasporic heritages and cultures, that we can still consume the the Caribbean, right? Mm-hmm. And so what I want to do at the end of the book is to help us to rethink and reimagine sex and sexual labor. And to what, what I say at the end is that perhaps in thinking about Caribbean freedom, and the, the potential sites of Caribbean rebellion that we can rethink and re-understand and possibly challenge how we think about sex and sexual labor, and that that is also a site of resistance. Yeah, that's a really important point, and I'm glad that you um, that you brought it up. Um, thank you so much for talking to me. I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. This has been really great, and I really appreciate you taking the time to think about my book and share. Thanks for listening to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm Alejandra Bronfman, and I hope you can join me next time.